Good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure for me to be here. I had a lot of conversations with Edwin, who is my friend, uh, for a long time. I met Edwin when I was 16 years old, and he was a role model to me all the time. He was studying civil engineering, and then I asked him, hey, why don't we just go to the pastoral ministry and study for being pastors? That was a passion in us. And he wisely said, you need to go through university and see if God is calling you to that, to do that. So he was, we, we had a great friendship and we were talking about the grace of God. And I had a lot of questions, even being a preacher and a teacher, I had a lot of questions about the grace of God because when I see myself and my sinfulness, I was thinking like, maybe I'm not a Christian. Um, so when I see myself, I don't know how can I be saved. But then when I see Christ, I don't know how I'm going to be lost because he came to do all that I cannot do for myself. But in that moment, I was so focused on myself that um, I was forgetting the gospel. So even being here in Cornerstone and preaching the Bible, I was forgetting the gospel. And something happened after I... Uh, you know, conversations with Edwin and everything about the grace of God. But when I went to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale after being here, that was in 2011, for in some way, some re- I don't know how to explain that, I, 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 I arrived to this realization that um, the gospel of God was preached there to Christians. So I realized that the gospel... It's not just for those people outside that need Jesus. The gospel is for sinners, and I am the first of those. So for that reason, I mean, I started uh, learning about that, and I want to share what I then, in nine years, started writing and thinking, and then this book came up, and I'm going to show you about that. So the book is about uh, a theological and historical exposition of God's law and gospel uh, for sinners and saints dealing with their sins and being set free by the word of Christ. So that's basically the, uh, the, the main topic of the book. And what I'm going to show you is that the book is um, divided in three main areas. So first... I talk about the diagnosis of the law. The law gives you the diagnosis of your condition. You are condemned in yourself. But then the gospel tells you the remedy. So even if you are condemned, there is hope for you because Christ came to do all the things that the law demands you and you cannot do for yourself. That's the idea. And then the implications. So now what? Now what should be doing? So now you're free to live according to the vocation that you have been called for. So that's the, the main things. So with that, um, why is the title of this book, I Am the Problem? So the story is that in 1905, a, the Daily News, that's a newspaper in London, um, they published a debate for writers in that time asking this interesting question. 
what is wrong with the world? What is happening? And G.K. Chesterton sent a letter that has more than 700 words, by the way. It was not a short sentence. He sent a letter telling many things, and in one of the paragraphs, he said this. I quote uh, G.K. Chesterton. In one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question that the newspaper was asking, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. So he, he was saying that. But then what happened in, during the years is that that letter, that commentary from G.K. Chesterton, a very famous writer in London, was a legend. Like they were saying that he, as he wrote a letter saying, Dear sirs, I am the problem. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. So you just like, or, or, you know. But regardless of the details of the anecdote attributed to Chesterton, the main point is the truth that, communi- that communicates. Most of the problems we suffer in the world, in our particular society, in our family, and in ourselves, directly or indirectly, have a common cost related to the evil that is in each of us. Hence, Chesterton was pointing out that we are not going to find what is wrong with the world outside of of us, but the root of evil is within us. So um, I don't know how many people here have seen this novel or have read the novel or seen the, the movie The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. In that movie, there is a scene where um, Hannibal Lecter, the killer, he, he was talking to this uh, researcher, psychology, uh, you know, um, psychologist researcher, and she was, uh, she was asking him, I think you can provide some insight and advance uh, this study. And he said, and what possible reason could I have to do that? Curiosity. About what? About why you are here. About what happened to you. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever nobody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I am evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? That is a fascinating scene, right? So he's talking to Why? Because now you knew what happened in, you know, in Parkland with this problem in the school, the guy shooting and everything. And of course, the defense, the lawyers, what are they going to do? They're going to say, oh, the boys, you know, the product of society, he's just crazy. Give him a chance. That's the lawyer's work. But to G.K. Chesterton's point, if you try to find the answer to that problem in Parkland with the society, you know, you're not going to find it because I am the problem. We are all, the only reason I was not the shooter is by the grace of God. 
And many of you say, no, you don't even have guns. Oh, okay, that's true. But when think about yourself when you're driving in Palmetto. What happened there? You, know, you, you would kill a lot of people there. So I am the problem, definitely. So with that, um, there is theologically basis to say that we are the problem. And what happened was that back in the, the 5th century, um, Augustine of Hippo uh, was uh, dealing with this subject. And he found out that we are inclined to sinful things. And then in the Reformation, Martin Luther, he was an Augustinian monk. So he was studying Augustine, and he realized that, yeah, we are some sort of curved in on ourselves. So he came up with this phrase, Martin Luther, in Latin, saying, Homo incurvatus in se ipsum est, which means man is curved in on himself. And that is very important to, to remember. But so that's... That's been a thing that from, from a lot of time. And there is a biblical basis to say that. For example, 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lowliness. Or sin is not only about external behavior, but it's your attitudes. Like uh, how do you, like Matthew five twenty one says that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And he said, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's about an internal attitude. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. All human inherited guilt and all human inherited corruption. So you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. So what is the theological basis for that? Uh, Louis Burkhoff said that um, he talked about depravity. And we call it Total depravity or radical, so like a, a root cause depravity. So he says that what that doesn't mean is it's not that every man is thoroughly depraved as he can possibly become. It doesn't mean that the sinner has not innate knowledge of the will of God or that sinful man does not often admire virtuous character and actions in others or is incapable of a disinterested affection in his relations with others? What is radical depravity in theology? Well, that is the, that the inherent corruption that we inherited from Adam is extended to every part of man's nature, to all the faculties and powers, to both soul and body, and that there is no spiritual good that is good in relation to God in the sinner, but only perversion. In other words, think about your best deeds. The best thing that you did, it's tainted by the sinful condition. So, for example, I go to the kitchen and I, oh, I want some ice cream, right? So let me take, uh, and I ask my, my, my wife, hey, do you want some ice cream? 
Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you for thinking about that. Oh, I'm a good husband, right? I'm thinking about... But then when I serve both, I'm thinking, which one should I keep? Because this looks better than the other. So at the end of the day, we always have something, you know, it's tainted. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from uh, the 20th century, he died in 1981. He said this wonderful phrase. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against the every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good co- a case for ourselves. On the other hand, um, we have that, um, the question, like, okay, Arturo, I get it. Those people out, outside of the church, they are sinners. They are evil people, right? But what about the Christian? We have been now born again, etc. Is the Christian as much a sinner as the uh, unbeliever? And that question was asked to a group of uh, evangelicals uh, that there was a research. And 65% of evangelicals in the United States they believe that humankind in general is basically good. So they ask this question. Uh, and, and so they say like everyone sins a little bit, but most of the people are basically good. 65% of, of them said that. So again, they are talking about those Christians. What do you think about the sinners outside the church? And they are saying, they're basically good people. Imagine if you ask them about themselves. Oh, of course we are good, right? And Paul Washer said this, the biggest problem today is that people do not see themselves as sinners. And even believers do not realize how sinful they are. That is totally true. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need to hear the law that accuses you. That you are the man. You are the man. And we need the gospel who says, there is a man who came and he did it for you. And that's the gospel. So, yeah. But now, there's a good question here, an honest one. And the question is, okay, but the Bible says, and it is true, that the Christians are new creation. How can they be called sinners? That's a good question. And I have bad news and good news. So the bad news is that in yourself, you are a sinner. But the good news is that in the Bible, there is no one reference that God speaks of you, if you are a Christian, as a sinner. But now God says, you are my beloved child in whom I am pleased. That's good news. But how do you, you know, okay, but are you a sinner or not? And Martin Luther said, you are both. And he said this in, during the Reformation, he came up with this phrase in Latin that says, simul justus et peccator. That means simul is simultaneously. Justus means righteous and peccator means sinner so and he wrote this a christian man is 
righteous and a sinner at the same time. Holy and profane, an enemy of God and a child of God. Let me tell you, I am avoiding being, you know, sharing gossip here. But I was in, in a church that I, pres- I, I, I submitted my presentation and one of the pastors asked me, please remove that phrase there from Luther that says that we are enemies of God because that cannot be. Luther is wrong. We are not enemies of God. But you know, I tried to explain that. Past- I removed the whole thing, right? So I didn't want any problems. But the point is, in reality, that if you don't understand the simul of Luther, the simul used to say peccator, you are not going to understand why he's telling about you as that you are still in yourself a sinner. So let me say this. This is very important. If you're not going to pay attention to anything that I say, please pay attention to this. This was my aha moment. When I understood this, I, understood, oh, I, I said, oh, now I get it. Remember my fights, my struggle was like, if I'm a Christian, but I'm still seeing inside of me this sinful condition, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to be in heaven. Maybe I'm not a Christian, as I thought. And Luther gave me the answer. What is the answer here? Okay, this is the way he is explaining this. On the left side, you have a yellow circle. And that yellow circle represents the old age, the old creation. So we are born uh, like children of Adam and Eve. You are children of Adam and Eve. And as that is a reality, you, and how do you know? You get sick, you are decaying. So every time you look at the mirror, so, oh no, I don't know, I'm trying to look younger, but that's impossible. I am decaying, I'm getting older, and I get sick, and I'm going to die one day. If you're going to die, it's because you are not glorified saint. You are still in yourself a sinner. So the old creation, the old age, is the human reality. In himself, man is a sinner. In himself. Now, on the other hand, the good news is that Christ came... And now we are new creation. And that means that in Christ, you are a new reality. You are a a Christian. You are even, I'm going to say this, in Christ, you are perfect. You are righteous. You are holy. So when you pray to God and you feel unworthy, think that you are praying In the name of Jesus, that means it's on his behalf. It's because he sees you in Christ. That's your new reality. But still, I had a problem with that. Because I was thinking, okay, I am a new creation. But I'm still struggling with these things, those sinful thoughts and those situations. So, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Because... The Bible tells that if you're a new creation, all, you know, all things past, you are no longer there. So Luther gave me that answer. I mean, he didn't wrote the circles, 
that was a professor in seminary that explained it like this, but I get it now. If you see those as separate circles, you're going to be in trouble. But when you understand that you are now here in this present era, we are, if you're a Christian, now you are in the green area. This is the already and not yet of the Christian life. You are already a Christian, but you are not glorified as of yet. You are not glorified because, I mean, we are in this um, situation where we still are in the world and we are sinners in ourselves, but in Christ. So think about that. You are part of the yellow circle because you are a human being. But you are part of the blue circle because you are in Christ. So for, in God's sight, you are a Christian that has been justified, sanctified, and even glorified in God's mind. Because he's not subjected to the uh, tem- temporary things. He, you know, eternity in his eyes is in front of him. So in his mind... It's already done. He died in the cross and he said, it is finished. So it is already done. But again, if you think of those circles like separate, then you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Now, the summary of all that is that the problem is in myself, but the solution is outside of myself. The law discovers the problem And the gospel provides the solution. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of what happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk. He was very religious. He wanted to do the things rightly. And what happened to him was that at some point, he was confusing the law and the gospel. How? Well, you remember that text where he says that... um, uh, that now that God is announcing, proclaiming the gospel, that's Romans 1.17, that he says that uh, he is announcing the gospel, and now the gospel is announcing the righteousness of God. He thought that the gospel was a better Moses, a better law. So he, and he was fighting against the text, and he said, I was hating God because I was thinking, that was Luther saying that back in the day. He was saying, I mean, this is not fair. I had the law of Moses and I couldn't even bear with that. And now you're giving me the gospel that says that, no, it's not the external behavior. You have to feel love for God, feel love for your enemies. And Luther said, I don't know. I mean, this is, I cannot, I cannot stand this. But then when he understood the difference between the law and the gospel, because remember, Romans is saying that the gospel is announcing the righteousness of God. Questions to you, anybody that can answer this question. What was the righteousness that God was announcing or is announcing in the gospel? What is the righteousness? Anybody? Take a chance. Yes, Jesus is the righteousness that he's providing. So the law is showing, is announcing the righteousness that God demands. 
And the gospel is showing the righteousness that he is providing in Christ Jesus. So that's why the gospel is good news. What is the good news? That the righteousness of God that the law was compelling you to do, demanding you, that is already done in the righteousness of God that Jesus is giving you. That's the gospel. And that's the good news. So after understanding this, he said this. I learned to distinguish between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the gospel. I lacked nothing before this except that I made no distinction between the law and the gospel. I regarded both as the same thing and held that there was no difference between Moses and Christ except the times in which they lived and their degrees of perfection. But when I discovered the proper distinction, namely, that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through and was free. And my question to you today, brother and sister, uh, is, when did you break through? Because in my experience, it's very difficult to find a believer that has this understanding of the difference between the law and the gospel in their first days in the, in the gospel when, where they are converted. I was that guy. I was confused between, because I thought that the law, I had to keep the law to please God. God, how am I doing now? But I, when I see myself, I say, I know I'm not doing good. God should be, might be, you know, mad at me. And I thought that the gospel was about following laws. <laughs> As the God, no, 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 that's a confusion. And I had a breakthrough when I understood the difference in the distinction of the law and the gospel. And here's what Luther continues saying. Therefore, whoever knows well how to distinguish the gospel from the law should give thanks to God and know that he is a real theologian. I admit that in time of temptation, I myself do not know how to do this as I should. In other words, temptation. What temptation? Well, imagine a situation where you sin against God, and then you are, oh, I sinned against God. I, I, I don't know what to do now. And, and now you are feeling guilty, but you do nothing about that. You don't repent. You don't do nothing. You are believing that as if, okay, let me put it this straight. Let me do my best effort. And then when I do that, God will forgive me. You are confusing both things. So he said, in times of temptation, when you are sinning or you are tempted, you are confusing those sometimes. So this is not a homiletic thing like, oh, yeah, this is law. This is gospel. This is the verses in the Bible that is law. Not necessarily. It's not that easy. Law and gospel are two words that God uses. So he's saying to, uh, through Nathan, he said to David, you are the man. That was law. When God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? That is the law, the voice of the law. But the voice of the gospel is when Jesus says, come to me, come to me and rest. So 
That was the distinction there. So in summary, with that part, how to distinguish law and gospel? I'm going to give you two ideas there, very easy. One is the law is the righteousness that God demands. Every verse in the Bible, everything that you read and you understand, this is what God wants me to do. It is good. It is perfect. The law is good. That is a demand. Is it a, if that's a demand, that's law. Even if you read it in the Sermon of the Mountain, even if you read it in the New Testament, the New Testament has lots of laws. Like, children, obey your parents. That's a law. And, oh, but that's law. I don't care because now I have the gospel. No, no, no. You should obey. But that's a demand. Now, the good news, the gospel is the righteousness that God delivers to you. So he said, like, he's demanding you, children, obey your parents. I'm saying, I'm trying, but you don't know my parents, right? So, but then when you receive the righteousness of Christ, say, even if I am not obeying my parents perfectly, I trust not in my obedience, but I trust in the obedience of Christ for me. That's the gospel. So that's the difference there. Now, um, what is the function of the law? And that's some people, so what then the law? And we're going to uh, talk more about that in, in the sermon uh, with Paul saying in Galatians chapter 3 that the Galatians were asking, why then the law? And then, but this is the function of the law. The law is very important. The law gives me the knowledge of my sin. The law brings the wrath of God. And of all those um, affirmations there, all those uh, sentences there are from the Bible. The law always accuses me because it is the ministry of condemnation. The law curses me because I am not able to obey it perfectly. But the law's purpose is to point us to Christ. And we're going to talk about that more uh, in the service. So uh, I'm going to skip that part. Now, what about the gospel? Well, the word gospel in Greek is Evangelion, from which we have the Spanish word Evangelio. So Evangelion means or comes out of two particles. Eu meaning good and angelos meaning message. So Evangelios is good message. But notice that it's an announcement. It is not good advice. So when they say, you need to obey the gospel, theologically, that's wrong. You don't obey the gospel. You receive the gospel. You believe the gospel. You have to obey the law. So there are two, di two different things. So what is the gospel? In one word, Jesus. In four words, Jesus forgave my sins. In 20 words, the gospel is the announcement of the good news. Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. In 25 words, the gospel is the announcement of the good news. Jesus died and was raised to forgive and save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In 25 theological words, the gospel proclaims the son's atonement, propitiating the father's wrath to give the spirit of adoption to cho chosen sinners and calling them children of God. So, 
what is the distinction between the law and the gospel? The law shows the sins of the world, but cannot do anything to prevent them. On the other hand, the gospel proclaims the forgiveness of sins under the promise that in Christ, there are no longer, there no longer exist. The law stimulates the power of sin in me. The gospel is the power of God that delivers me from sin in me. The law brings the wrath of God. The gospel proclaims peace with God. The law always accuses me because it's the ministry of condemnation. The gospel always acquits me because it's the ministry of justification. The law is the ministry of death used by my sin to kill me. The gospel is the ministry of life to give me life with God through Jesus Christ. The end of the law is to point us to Christ. The end of the gospel is to present us to Christ or to present Christ to us. Now, what about this distinction? I like this quote from uh, Theodore Bessa, who was a disciple of John Calvin. And Theodore Bessa didn't take this lightly. He said, ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. And that is totally true. And we all have been victim, uh, victims of, of those abuses. How? Well, in some churches, I'm not talking about this one. I don't even know, you know, because I'm not here, right? But I'm assuming because I know my brother, friend, Edwin and Freddie, and I know that they know the gospel. But in some instances, we tell Christians like, if you are a Christian, you should be doing this. That is true. But remember, they are still sinners. And sometimes we see, oh, isn't he a pastor? I am shocked that he's saying this. Remember, the guy's a sinner. So, it's, but when you have that ignorance, there is abuses, there is corrupt, corruption there, and they are abusing many people, trying to impose things as if it was the gospel. And, you know, that's important to know. Um, let me go uh, to just one more quote. In the, in the book, I have many quotes, and I'm going to talk about those. But this is a Dutch theologian, Reformed theologian, uh, Herman Babink. He says, the law is known from nature, the gospel only from special revelation. The law demands perfect righteousness, but the gospel grants it. The law leads people to eternal life by works, and the gospel produces good works from the riches of the eternal life granted in faith. The law presently condemns people, and the gospel acquits them. So again, I have many quotes like that in the book. And here is a list of some of the people I quoted speaking about the difference, the distinction between the law and the gospel. And the purpose to quote so many people in the book, that's in chapter 5, is because I want people to identify, to relate to their own tradition. For example, in that list we have Lutherans, but we also have Calvinist people. We have Presbyterian people. We have uh, Puritans. We have Anglicans. We have Baptists like uh, 
John Charles Charles, uh, Ryle. We have another Baptist, John Bunyan. We have even uh, Charles Spurgeon. So we have people from all over the place. So you can pick your favorite hero and you will see them speaking about the distinction between law and gospel. Now, I'm going to ask a question to you guys. Uh, and this is important, and this is part of the interaction that it's important. If I ask someone here, what sums up the law? What is the main thing that the law says? What is that? What do you say? Obedience, but there's even a, a verse. Yeah, obedience to what? To do what? What is the main thing that I have to obey? Ten Commandments. And what is the summary of the Ten Commandments? Love God and love our neighbors as we ourselves. Okay, so Paul says because of that, in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, Do you want to fulfill all the law? Just love. Augustine used to say, love and do whatever you want. Of course, because if you love God, you don't want to do anything that is contrary to his will. If you love your neighbor, you don't want to do anything that is contrary to your neighbor. So love is the key. So the Beatles were right. All we need is love. But here is the catch. We are preaching over and over, love your neighbor. Three steps to love our wives or to love our spouses better. Ten steps to raise our children and love them. And it's not working. Why? This is another question I have for you. What is it that produces love in you? This is a more difficult question, but there is a verse in the Bible, in Galatians, that says, why? What is producing love? What is generating love in your heart? And according to Paul, in Galatians 5, 6, is faith. Faith works through love. So faith produces. So if you want to love, you just need to listen and receive the faith. And the faith will generate that love for your neighbor and love for God. So Instead of preaching, you have to love your neighbor. You have to love God. We need to preach something that produces love. I mean, to produces faith that produces love. But now, this is a more is an easier question for you. What does the Bible say about faith? How do you get faith? Faith comes from from hearing, and hearing. The word of Christ. They're hearing from, uh, by the word of Christ. So in other words, 
the gospel, the word of Christ, is what produces, what generates the faith necessary to generate uh, love. I, I wrote here law, and, and I meant love. That's a mistake there. So it's the word of Christ, faith, and love. So God's love compels me to love my neighbor. So from, if you ask me, what is the secret of the Christian life? It's that. It's that the gospel, the word of Christ, produces faith, and faith generates love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. So you want to fulfill the law? Just receive the faith. How can you receive the faith? Through the gospel. So wrapping up, the book I'm offering to you is structured in these three pillars. Uh, first part is the diagnosis that the law says that you are, I am the problem. My addiction, you know, in chapter 2, if you want to know about my addiction, you can read chapter 2. But I can tell you immediately, I am addicted to myself. All, it's all about me because I am curved in myself, as uh, Luther and, and Augustine said. In part two is the remedy. So how can you solve that? Okay, the justification and the law and gospel explained. And law and gospel for sinners and saints, meaning how do you um, implement that in your life? And the third part is the implications, walking according to our vocation. And there is a question in chapter 8 that covers history there. Like, okay, Arturo, if that is true, why don't we listen that kind of distinction and law and gospel very often in the church? So, in other words, whatever happened to the gospel? I gave you a survey, historical survey of what happened there. But the conclusion, I can tell you, I am the problem. So that's why. So even if you go back to <laughs> Renaissance or whoever, the problem is that we are curved in ourselves. So we always want to talk about, okay, I get it, the gospel. But what should I do now? What is my part of this business? I mean, this is grace. It's all is given. It's for free. But if you say, no, but I want to do something like the rich young ruler that you have heard a lot from Edwin. I don't know because that's his favorite story, maybe. But he said, the guy was there. What should I do to inherit the earth? Oh, just follow the commandments. I have done everything that. Uh, all covered. Okay, sell everything you have and sell it to your, um, the poor people, your neighbor. And then, oh, no, I cannot do that. So you, you don't love God. You don't love your neighbor. So you need the law to tell you that you are not that good as you believe. And um, I want to tell you about this uh, picture that I put in front of the, in the cover of the, of the book. Uh, it's a very beautiful painting from the Renaissance. And it's a contrast. And the, 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 the picture is titled, An Allegory of the Old and New Testaments by Hans Holbein the Younger. And it was painted during, I think it was 1529, 1530s, and it was commissioned, so they asked him to paint a contrast between the law and the gospel. And you can see there, um, I don't know if this has a laser point, probably. Uh, let me check. Yeah, you see, you, you see there Moses and there are Latin titles, uh, because back in the day, 
Latin was the language for the arts and the science. So if they were going to write anything in the, in the painting, it was in Latin. So it says there, lex, that means law. So Moses receiving the law, and the law was condemning what Adam and Eve did in the garden uh, when they disobeyed God. And that sinful condition uh, produced what you see this skeleton here, and it says mors, in Latin mors is death. So the, the sinful condition produced death. So, and the law is accusing them because of that. But then you see the contrast here. Here you have the law, and here it says gratia, meaning grace. What is grace? So God sent his angels to announce a woman, a lady, a virgin, that she will conceive and she will bear a son. That was the promise. And while, you know, um, the pecatum or sin produces mores, that's death. So now Jesus Christ as the Last Adam, this is the first Adam, this is the last Adam, he came and conquered death. And he, it says here, Victoria Nostra, meaning our victory is Jesus. And my favorite uh, uh, point in this picture is this man here. It says there, homo. In Latin, homo means man, mankind, human being. Do not confuse with the other homo that we use. That's Greek, like similar, the same. No, that's Greek. In Latin, homo is man. So here is man, naked, ashamed, and sitting on a stone. And that stone is telling that verse that says, uh, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then you have Isaiah, the prophet, here, quoting Isaiah 7.14, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In other words, you had the promise in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, you see uh, John the Baptist here pointing him to Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and again, I am quoting those verses. They are here in Latin. So if you can read Latin and you can, you know, zoom in or you can go to the exposition of the picture is in Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, in uh, the National Galleries Museums of Scotland. And it's there. My bucket list is I want to go there and, and you know, see the, the picture. Uh, it, I mean, it, it should be a very glad experience for me to see that. So in conclusion, um, the same gospel that brought me into the kingdom of heaven is the same gospel that continues to give me freedom, healing, and transformation. And that's why we want to continue preaching that gospel.